It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne. It's syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. My name is Kay Winnigal and today I'm joined by my co-host Natalie Bucknell. Hello listeners, hello Kay. And Michael Steindl. G'day everyone. Now, the name Oliver Yates may carry the distinction of being the first bank that we've had on the show. With a background with Macquarie Bank and the former chief executive of the government's $10 billion Clean Energy Finance Corporation, Oliver is now executive director of UPC Renewables and a senior consultant with Macquarie Group. He is with us today from Fiji to help explain the NEG, the National Energy Guarantee, which is something this federal government is having trouble explaining to the states and us. Hello, Oliver. Thanks for joining us. Uh, bulla bulla from Fiji. <laughs> bulla bulla. <laughs> How are things over there? What's happening with climate change in Fiji? Oh, there's a lot of concerns here. Um, we just did a meeting, for example, with the uh, uh, Prime Minister of Tuvalu, who um, yeah, is pointing out quite quite clearly how and, uh, they feel um, Fiji's very threatened. We've got villages, four villages have gone, 43 are under challenge. Um, there's real sense of um, pending urgency here uh, in uh, in the Pacific Islands, about um, what we're going to do. Um, interestingly, is um, they're talking about the release of a new report, which will be out in October, which apparently the government's already got a, a hold of, um, which is uh, the IPCC report, 1.5 degrees um, report, which um, has some very important findings for uh, for us all, um, in, in, in particular about the desperate need to uh, reduce emissions a lot faster than uh, than we are and how that effectively producing those emissions faster actually produces a better economic result than reducing them more slowly. So um, very interesting findings. They're all in a draft report. I think the government has that draft report. I don't think it's been released. Uh, well, it hasn't been released to the pub- public yet. But, well, um, we certainly haven't heard about it. All of well, them you know, it sets, it, sets the time. it sets the tone, unfortunately, which is really important about this time. Part of the next discussion is obviously about um, what's the right level of emissions ambitions to build in for our electricity sector, and that's the main topic of debate. At the moment. And and that's just so um, classic and predictable with the IPCC reports, isn't it, Oliver, that they're built on this lowest common denominator with research that's several years old and it has to be agreed by everyone of the 196 nations and so we always get the the best case and, in fact, next report comes out and we've actually proceeded along the line of the worst case. Well, that's, that's what it is. I think it's maybe a bit of a different report. It was commissioned as part of... The Paris Agreement by the nations which are most threatened by um, rising sea levels um, and uh, the report uh, has very, very clear findings um, in relation to the difference that it makes if you attempt to hold climate change to 1.5 degrees or you allow it to drift on to 2 degrees. But at the moment, as business as usual case, they're pointing out that uh, by 2040 you will have clipped past 1.5 degrees. And that if you want to have a chance of staying at 1.5 degrees, then uh, global emissions have to peak in 2020 
and they have to be cut at 50% every 10 years mm-hmm. from, uh, from 2020. So whilst the NEG we're going to talk about is deciding for the electricity sector that it should be uh, immune from uh, um, having to reduce its emissions between 2020 and 2030, they're saying globally um, the whole globe has to reduce its emissions by 50% between 20, uh, 30, between 2020 and 2030. So the inconsistency is extremely, extremely bright and that information is in the government's hands. Mm, it certainly does sound like it is. And, I mean, BZE, of course, is a signatory to the climate emergency and it sounds now like the IPCC is taking uh, much more direct action than it used to be. Well, as you know, you're right. The report is a consensus report, so everyone gets a chance to try and water it down. But, um, you know, science is science at the end of the day and um, this is not a, um, a subject, an area that hasn't been subject to immense scientific mm. scrutiny and immense scientific effort. So... You know, if you don't believe scientists, I don't think we can help anybody. Um, but um, if you um, if you do believe all the work that uh, global scientists do in relation to this matter, then um, it's a report that um, um, should make every nation uh, sit up and uh, and reassess where they're going. So, what are the other points in the report? Can you tell us more about it? Uh, yeah, it actually, interestingly, it says that. Um, that um, their view is that primary energy production from coal has to fall by two-thirds by 2020, by 2030, sorry, oh, by 2030. <laughs> so, so, so the idea that, you know, we'll be keeping our uh, coal fleet running, um, you know, well into the 2050s or, uh, or beyond, which is um, what the government's current view is in Australia, is, again, completely inconsistent with, um, with any form of good science in relation to the reports that they have available uh, to them. Um, you know, and I think this, they need to understand... That, that we have a responsibility to other countries and that if countries like these suffer um, damage, um, then, you know, Australia suffers damage as well. If, when we will suffer damage, you might not be able to see it as much because we're a bigger country, but that damage is going to be occurring to us, it's going to be occurring to our ecosystems and it's going to occur to our environment and our children's future. And um, the real question is, is how do you, you know, the report actually points out that um, in that range between 1.5 and 2 degrees is that... Um, but it's irreparable damage that's, that's done and uh, we shouldn't uh, be um, condoning any activity um, that re- results in irreparable damage to um, a nation or a world or a country that we need to leave to, uh, leave to others. Especially as the uh, richest behead in the world and, and with such wonderful renewable resources. That's I'll right. Well, it's easy, easy for us in Australia to actually meet those emissions targets. Yeah, and, and we've had our carbon. We owe it to the rest of the world, in my opinion. Oliver, um, so coming to that fight... Um, locally, you've yeah. been a lifelong member of the Liberal Party, but you'll be remembered for the for um, leaving a Liberal Party ten thousand dollar table fundraiser last year when Liberal Senator Jane Hume presented a, a rock dressed up as a piece of brown coal to congratulate Scott Morrison on his lump of coal in Parliament stunt. And you said that stunt was flagrantly immoral, and you cannot understand how Liberals would knowingly inflict damage on others when they have a perfectly workable economic cure in front of them: the adoption of clean yeah. energy. Um, well, just tell us briefly about that and and what changes you might see in the Liberal Party or how we might get some. Well, look, you know, I don't change from that position and I must say not a single person from the executive of the Liberal Party have called up and apologised for uh, <laughs> stunts that, mm. that obviously caused myself. That's and I'm sure others there, some, some offence. But um, but anyway, that's that's a bit of water under the bridge. And, um, you know, the Liberal Party's made up of a diverse group. I'm one of the many diverse group of people in the Liberal Party and some of us are strongly concerned about climate change. So the advantage is, is that um, 
we have a right to uh, to express our views. We're the inside uh, inside the party, and, uh, and and we do, and I encourage others to. But um, we should probably focus on the neg rather than um, rather than politics, because that's what your your viewers or your listeners probably want to uh, want to understand or have a chance to uh, to hear. Okay, well, let's talk about the neg. So that's the energy policy that proposed by the Turnbull government in late. 2017, and I think the ESB, the Energy Security Board, constructed it to deal with energy security, reliability and energy prices. So you recently said about the NEG is that the only thing it does is to help people producing emissions to know that they don't have to reduce their emissions over the next 10 years. Can you explain that further? Well, I was thinking about that because actually then the National Energy Guarantee really becomes a National Emissions Guarantee. It's got the same <laughs> name. But, but, but effectively, effectively, I know you're chucking there, but that's the way it does sound, doesn't it? I, I sometimes I make that more gallows humour. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the system um, actually lays down um, uh, an emissions target for um, the electricity sector which um, is based on an assumption that the electricity sector only needs to do its portion of the work that we need to do to reduce our emissions appropriately to meet our Paris target, the current Paris target, which is already, you know, la- uh, largely inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what they're trying to do is, because it's a 2005 to 2020 target of a 26% reduction, they're saying, oh, well, if the electricity sector does a 26% reduction between 2005 and 2030, then it's done its share of the work and the rest of the economy that we'll have to do uh, its portion of the work. Now, the issue with that is, is, is firstly, uh, by the time the NEG starts, you know, obviously it's not 2005 when the NEG starts, the NEG doesn't start until 2020, we've already met the whole target. So the electricity sector, as a result of renewables coming into the system, has already achieved 26% or you know, 20, probably 24, I think it is, 24% mm. reduction. So effectively what you'd be locking in place there is a scenario where you're indemnifying that sector and saying that sector, congratulations guys, you know, you don't need to reduce emissions now for the next 10 years because the government is trying to put in place that um, that once this lock comes into place, no change can be made to that emissions profile for 10 years. So the electricity sector gets an emissions guarantee, for want of a better word, they could continue to emit at the same rate. Um, between 2020 and, uh, and, and 2030. And, and that's probably the biggest, the biggest problem with that policy. The other core problem with that policy is, you know, if you're going to try and do this on a sector-by-sector basis, we know how you can reduce emissions in the electricity sector, but um, uh, you tell me how you're going to reduce emissions in the aircraft sector or the transport sector or uh, in a, how are you going to do it in the steel sector? All of that has to be done. Or agriculture. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and what you're talking about, let's take, let's take the, the easiest one to visualise is that, say, the aircraft sector. Well, the aircraft sector has probably risen by 30% since 2005, up between 20, 2005. Uh, and now it's saying, well, we're at 2020 and we're going to have to suddenly reduce ourselves down by 26% from that point. Well, it'll be about a 30 or 40% cut because no, none of those sectors have actually reduced. So it's... And they're the more expensive sectors. Now, we know how to do this in electricity, and we know how important it is to do it in the electricity sector because the electricity sector permeates the whole economy. So if you can reduce emissions in the electricity sector and you can get more and more people to switch to electricity, then in essence you can create a deep clean-up of the carbon footprint of Australia. And we can do that in Australia. It's cheap, it's easy, and it's doable. Well, that's right. I mean, if renewables already are economically are more cost-effective, why wouldn't you do it? 
Well, you know, the, the, the argument in relation to the need comes around to balancing uh, change with security. And, and, and there's two parts to the NEG, right? There's the design of the mechanism of the NEG, and then there's the underlying policy debate. And with, with all hats off to um, the ESB and, and Kerry Schott. They've done a great job in dealing with the design characteristics of the NEG, so how a NEG would work. So that's kind of like a tool. So you've got a tool. The tool basically is designed to create a system that ensures that the long-term generation assets you have in the market that are available to provide um, power at, at, at when you need it actually match the long-term demand profile. And um, so, in other words, that, that's, what, that's what the security part of it. And then what you're saying is, as well, as long as you've got those type of assets and as long as you've got long-term supply assets meeting long-term demand and they've got an overall emissions profile that's appropriate, then, then you're on the right path. And, and that makes sense because what... What can happen in a transition like this is if you pour um, a large volume of variable generation into the market and you don't consider the need for the, the supply, the, the, you don't consider your demand profile so that if your demand profile doesn't meet the supply profile of variable generation, then the grid can start to become more electricity system can start to become unreliable and ha- have more volatility and, and be less secure. So the NEG as it ends um, is designed to balance the system through contract arrangements where people with known long-term demand for power need to match that with known long-term supply so that we don't create an imbalanced system. So it's kind of like that's all, that's all fine. That's, that all makes a good sense. Um, the only real question in relation to this and the big elephant in the room and the thing that government is just completely ignoring is what is the appropriate emissions profile for that generation that is in the market providing that power. Um, what about the impact on pricing, Oliver? Because that, that's been a big aspect of the debate around the NEG, where, you know, whether it would have a positive or negative impact on pricing. Well, as you'll see from the NEG report, and I'm surprised that you don't have it and your readers are able to, to get it. It's on, um, it's on the Renew website. Um, the report was issued on the, the 23rd of July and the government's response came out, um, you know, a few days ago. Um, in relation to pricing, it says two things. It says uh, very clearly, it states, oh, by the way, the big reason for reduction in prices from 2007 to 2020 that's already expected, so that's already now locked into the market, Big cause of that reduction, which is about five hundred and fifty dollars worth, I think, you know, the biggest portion of it, um, is driven by guess what, the arrival of renewables. So, in other words, the rush to conclude the build that's required under the under the RET and then also falling renewables prices have been the biggest driver, and they will be the biggest driver and cause of electricity price declines. Then what happens is, is under the neck basically we stop building, but they're then claiming that miraculously somehow we end up continues to save an extra $150 than if, than if we did something else. Now, that's all very nice to say an extra $150, but you've already saved $550. And if the government was really good at forecasting electricity prices and controlling the electricity system, we wouldn't be having this debate now, would we? So, you know, of course... I've, I've a, a bit of scepticism there. Re- well, sorry, have you ever seen a government report come out which didn't say that what we're doing is going to save you money? I mean, it wouldn't be very popular, so... Models and models will come out with whatever anybody wants them to say. Absolutely. So one of the concerns is that 
Um, the Energy Security Board in the structure of the NEG is still not recognising emission reductions from rooftop solar, whereas those from pre-existing large-scale hydro gets recognised. Is is that a concern? Uh, look, it's less of a concern to me because if I want more <laughs> renewable energy in the market, I'd like them not to even recognise solar, frankly, because then that would mean their 26% target needed to have even, you know, they need to build more to fill the 26% Absolutely. Target. But, you know, from a from a, a, a full analysis point of view, you could argue it should be recognised. Uh, um, so I, I, have, I personally have less of a concern with that. I know um, that other Rikwazali and others have, have concerns with, with how that works. Oliver, just continue on. I've followed this more closely than, than many perhaps, but I'm still quite confused about some issues. Another one um, is that I understand electricity relay, um, retailers can register and carry forward emission reductions which disadvantages renewable generators and potentially hands windfall gains to electricity retailers. Uh, what's going on there and what is that mechanism aimed to, to do? Look, these, these are very technical points that have come from uh, Rick, Rick. I think you should, you should uh, definitely talk with him about those. But, but effectively, I, I think what you're saying here is that, that um, the ability for one party to carry forward an obligation when another party doesn't seems unfair. So if a retailer can, you know, um, uh, carry forward 10% of their liability or, you know, over overhold an, an, an extra amount um, in a period. So, for example, if you're a generator of the um, clean credits, for want of a better word, even though we're not allowed to call them credits, but um, of clean generation, you're not allowed to withhold them in the market. You're not allowed to hold them back. You know, for prices, you're not getting the price you want for them. You can't hold them back. You actually have to hand them over to the retailers. But the retailers are allowed to hold on to them if they want to, which arguably changes the pricing point, doesn't it? Because if I don't want to sell it, but I'm being forced to sell it as a generator to the retailer who has to have it, well, not surprisingly, I don't have a lot of price negotiation power there, do I, if I'm being forced to sell it? And, uh, and then he can buy it and hold on to it next, for earnings demand next year. So you, you may have been able to see that there'll be a bit of a shortage next year and you may want to hold back some and uh, the way the rules work, I don't think you can hold it back. You have to actually hand it over. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Oliver Yates from UPC Renewables about the National Energy Guarantee and Oliver's um, kindly calling in from Fiji for us. Oliver, perhaps related to what you just said, I'm, I'm not clear, but the, the NEG will allow electricity retailers to use the Australian carbon credit units to meet their emissions liability, but it does not allow renewable generators and energy efficiency projects to create the ACCUs. This is another Rick Brazil one. Yeah. Um, do you see that as a concern either? Well, what he's saying, uh, what this really says is that, you know, um, in truth, um, whether I create a carbon credit or whether I reduce emissions through growing trees or putting in a renewable energy facility or uh, doing another activity... Um, I actually save carbon. So, so why, why uh, can't I get recognition for um, that? Because there may be a difference in price between one and the other. So if I could create ACCUs and they're worth more in the market than what I can get for the clean part of my energy, for example, which is what is the point that he's driving to, then why should I be denied because I'm a renewable energy provider from electing to produce ACCUs um, and not then be, be producing green energy or be treated as not producing green energy. So again, it, it seems to be 
a market scenario to say, well, look, sorry, guys, if your renewables, bad luck, your renewables, and if you've got generation which is green, you've got to hand it over. And if there's another price that you could have got somewhere else in the market, too bad we're not going to allow you to have that additional price or that different price, even though there's no logic in in the difference if you're either, you're either saving uh, carbon or you're not saving carbon. The COAG Energy Council's meeting on August 10th, and it's made an artificial drop-dead date to vote on the NEG by Minister Frydenberg. The ACT's spoken out about its rejection of the NEG, Queensland's um, making noises. But given that Labor states, Victoria and Queensland have much higher reductions targets, do you have an idea whether the policy will get approved or not on August 10? Well, I think this is the question of whether how they go about approving the, the, policy, the policy if they approve it. Now, at the moment, you know, approving this policy, <coughs> which basically is an emissions guarantee, in other words, reduces emissions zero in the electricity sector, uh, is, is pointless. So it, it is a pointless policy. However, the mechanisms that are in place, which would allow someone to change that, 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 that if you could change those emissions and if the government had like a, you know, a proper emissions target, then the policy would be valid. And they've split the documents into two. They're trying to get the states to change or pass what is the mechanism part, so the way the NEG works, and then they're saying the government will then set what the emissions target is. Now, that's nice in theory, but the states don't have to put up with that. The states can actually say, well, good, I like this scheme, and uh, we really trust you, Fed, you know, to do the right thing, but we don't trust you that much. So um, we also will put an emissions uh, um, lever in this, emissions guarantee, emissions floor, and we could say, well, we'll agree to this mechanism, and we don't mind what emissions target you put in place, government, but if it isn't at least 2% per annum, which means we decarbonise the electricity system in 50 years, if it isn't at least 2% per annum, then the scheme or the neg, it doesn't come into impact. So they can, they can make it a conditional approval, or they could set now very clearly the terms on which any approval would be considered. States could just say, we're not having that. You know, we're not going to have the risk that you guys put in a really poor emissions target. We will just say that this rules, these rules only apply to the extent that the emission target set by the federal government exceeds a certain level. So, so there's room to go yet, and, and I can understand why people are talking about wanting the NEG, because the NEG mechanism could be a mechanism which could last long, a long time, because you could ratchet up the level of emissions ambition um, time after time. And that would be nice if we had that mechanism because we've gone around and we've tried everything else, you know, with, you know, well, everything else would have worked as well, but eventually if, if everyone will agree to this, that's fine. It's all the same in a different box. Well, well, um, on, that, on that topic, if I can interrupt you, Oliver, um, the first question I asked you is that let's focus on the neg and not the politics, but this is a deeply political thing, isn't it? We've had the RET, the carbon price. Finkel tried to do an EIS, but the government rejected, so he did the CET, and now we've got the neg, and we've got... Now, a decade of indecision that is, is delayed investment. Um, what's, is there pressure on the two major political parties to reach a consensus? And what's stopping that? Is it the, the difference between their targets and, and Labor struggling with whether they will be able to adjust it? Well, that's right. So, so I think you're absolutely right. Everyone would like the mechanism in place with a meaningful emissions target. The politics in relation to this happens to be the meaningful emissions target. So um, Labor rightly are pointing out that it will cost everybody a lot, a lot more. So this idea of saying that, oh, you'll save money under your electricity bill, well, you know, if you don't do something in one sector and you have to do it in another, 
So what, am I going to pay an extra 800 bucks on my airline ticket because I'm going to get smashed for carbon in there, but I save 150 bucks on my, on my uh, electricity bill? I mean, this is the type of thing is that, that the problem is, is that you need to reduce emissions across the economy, and the cheapest place to do it happens to be in the electricity sector. But if you only look at the electricity sector prices, and if you only look at the cost, of course, any form of action in one sector versus another creates a cost. The question is, is which overall creates the less cost to you and I as citizens? And we know that the cheapest place to take meaningful emissions reductions is in the electricity sector. So it's political, but it's also economic. It's raw, sensible economics, which is the reason why this government, you know, which claims itself to be good economic managers, mm. should clearly be able to understand that we have to reduce our emissions you know, nationally across the board. We should do it in the way which is the cheapest overall for the consumer, which is where the electricity sector is. So it's very clear that the Labor government should not, uh, should not even contemplate this with this low target. But I understand why people are keep saying, oh, it'd be really nice to have agreement over a mechanism. It'd be really nice to have an agreement over a mechanism. But... Yeah, at the end of the day, people have got to have a backbone here and, and they need to actually stand up and say, no, well, you know, we'll have the, we can have the mechanism, but I'm going to put a safeguard in the mechanism if you want. The mechanism doesn't come into play. Hand it back to the Fed. If the states wanted to do it, they can say, here you go. We're handing it back to you now. The mechanism's in place. There's now a floor on those emissions that you must have an emissions target which has the following profile or higher, or otherwise it doesn't come into operation. You take the ball. So AEMO has made it clear that something like the NEG is vital... So what will happen if the NEG is rejected by the states? Uh, nothing, because their argument is it's vital. Um, with the emissions profile the government has got here, it's not vital. AEMA already has the tools in place to enable um, grid stability. That's what, um, what it's been doing you know, yesterday, last week, last summer. It has the ability to go forward and demand generation be uh, available if it foresees any future shortfall. Um, but I would be saying longer term, you, you do need the right policy mechanism to try and make sure that the supply of energy is available to meet the demand. And that can be done in numerous ways. Um, if the government was saying to AEMO, there is no possible way and we'll give you, there are no other tools possible, this is the only tool you'll ever have, then, then, then actually then the NEG would be critical to it. But AEMO's got plenty of other tools and any future government or, or any other arrangement could be put in place which would enable them to provide the same security to us as consumers that there will be the type of electricity there. So, you know, it's a bit of a, an amber claim if you, you know, put somebody in a room and say, you've only got two bottles of water to drink out of, one's poisonous, um, you know, if you don't drink that, yeah. uh, you'll die. You know, you, <laughs> well, That's I'm going to I'm I'm die anyway because I haven't got anything to drink, you know. Yeah. So okay, it, so it, yeah. unfortunately, Oliver, we've just run out of time. That's thank, all right. thank you so much for being in from Fiji, and I hope your discussions go well there. And I hope any any of these um, IPC reports and others will help. Well, I think you should watch. I think you should watch out for them because they give a better indication of what type of emissions target we should be setting. Yeah, good point. And and uh, maybe maybe the government is rushing this through, trying to trying to sneak it through before uh, before this report is public. Yep, good point. That, Thank that you. might explain Again. the artificial deadline of the August. Yeah, could be could be the artificial <laughs> deadline. Wouldn't wouldn't that be an immoral thing? <laughs> We've been speaking to Oliver Yates from UPC Renewables about the National Energy Guarantee. Thanks again, Oliver. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. 
If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, go to the BZE website and click on podcasts. If you can donate to cover airtime costs, please go to the website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.